Good morning. You know, the first passage here in verse 25, chapter 14, large crowds were going along with him. He turned and said to them, I've noticed that the crowds at Harvest Bible Church uh, have gotten larger in recent days. That's wonderful. It's good to see lots of people. I mean, you want lots of people. Love to see every seat filled. Today, however, has the potential to, to weed out about half of you. Yeah, you laugh, but it does. It's offensive. And I didn't say it. I am nothing but a messenger. I make no apology for it. I just want you to know that these are the words of Jesus. Let me just say first that, that we believe that God's grace is, the, is what allows us to, to have salvation in the first place. God doesn't have to allow us to be saved. Saved from the penalty of our sins. We are sinful people. It is God's grace that allows us to be saved. And His grace alone And the only way we can have access to God's grace that He has allowed us to have salvation is through faith alone. That means no faith in works. Faith alone in the object of our faith, who is Jesus Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. To God's glory alone. That is what what salvation is. We have have this free gift that that Todd prayed about. It's free to us. It cost God his life when he became a man. And we believe that you can have it by confessing with your tongue Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart God raised him from the dead. And we do. We amen that. As well we should. It's a wonderful story. It is what it means to be saved. But here's the warning. There's more to it. The way that this gospel is presented and has been presented for hundreds of years, even longer, especially in the modern day, is to water it down and make it real easy, as if it's not easy enough, by God's grace through faith alone and Christ alone. But to make, somehow make Jesus cool, to make you comfortable, to advertise a church as relaxed, relevant, and real, to make sure that no one's offended. To tell people, you just acknowledge that, that Jesus is, is Jesus. That he died on the cross and, and was raised from the dead. And you say yes to Jesus and you're in. No, you're not. You're not. If you told your children that, you didn't give them the full story. The full story unfolds here today. As the large crowds were going along with him, he turned and said to them, as if to thin them out a bit. By the way, if we looked at all the way, all the times that the word crowd or crowds are used in the the New Testament, we see in some places where the crowds were were upwards of of 15, 20,000 people. Imagine that. Thousands upon thousands of people. It's as if Jesus looks out in the crowd and says, this is getting too big. And as he's walking, he just decides to stop. He turns and he says to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What do you do with that? Jesus will give that. That's the first one where he says you can't be his disciple. Verse 22, he says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Look down at verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That changes things. That's not usually added to the gospel presentation, is it? We don't usually tell our children that. Okay, now little junior, do you want to go to heaven? Yes, mommy. 
believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, mommy. Then you're going to heaven. Let's get you baptized. Once saved, always saved. Who asks their kid to count the cost? Who tells their child, can you carry your cross? And what does that even mean? Can you give up everything? Now, the, the prosperity gospel permeates our society. It says, inherit and gain everything. That's how God shows that he loves you. No, that's a lie. There's a lot of people that walk around today that say they're saved, that think they're saved. Someone told them that they're saved, but they are not. I have encountered people through the years who say they are offended when a preacher would dare to question their salvation and ask them, are you really saved? Go ahead and be offended. Jesus does it all the time. John does it. Paul does it. Peter does it. Examine yourself, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, uh, 13, 5. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Are you? Or did you just acknowledge Jesus at a camp? Did you throw your hand in the air one time? Did you get baptized? And now you think you're a Christian. In order to thin the crowds out, Jesus gives them these three statements. If you are my disciple, you will do this. Anyone comes to me, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. Now, let's take a look so that we can interpret this in light of how Matthew presents it. Turn to the left. Go two Gospels over to Matthew 10, verse 38. Matthew 10, 38. We'll start at verse 37. Matthew 10, 37. He who does not love, or he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He doesn't use the word hate in that context. But in Luke's context, he says hate. Now, when you and I, obviously, the main word here is hate. Are we to hate our mother and father? Are we to hate our children? Not the way we use that word. The way we use the word hate is to detest, isn't it? That's really the only way we use the word hate. I hate something, I detest it. I don't want it, get it out of my sight, I don't want to look at it, I don't want to smell it, I don't want to be, if it's a person, I don't want to be around them. The range of meanings, however, for the Greek word can mean to love to a lesser extent all the way over to detest. That's a large range of meanings. As Matthew has shown us, he who loves father and mother more than me. And Jesus is saying here to love them lesser than me. So make sure that when you see this, you're going, wait a minute, that's, that's difficult. How am I supposed to hate my parents? You're not. We're supposed to love and honor our parents. And who among us who has children doesn't love them more than life itself? So by telling you what it means, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean to in any way despise or detest your mother and father. Isn't that a relief? Some of you are going, I already did and I needed a proof text to say it's okay. If anyone comes to me, telling the crowds, and does not hate, let's just put in what it really means, and does not love to a lesser extent his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even love his own life less, he cannot be my disciple. 
He cannot be saved. He cannot be a Christian. The issue here is about priorities. The priority of one over another. It's a degree of of what we love more. In chapter 16, Jesus will talk about loving money and God. Mammon and God. I love, I love money. I mean, I'm not in love with it, but I love money. I like to have a little extra money. Who doesn't? I'm not quite sure I know what it means, really, but to have, it sounds like a good thing to have a little extra money. I like that. I prefer that. And I love God. I love money, and I love God. There's no way that I could just one day say, I hate money. Money pays my bills. It gets me what I want. It allows me to turn the air conditioner on a hot summer. I love that. Anyone else? Okay, I mean, you are all noticeably very quiet. But which do I love more? Which do I love less? So in chapter 16, it's Jesus says in chapter 16, I believe it's verse 22. No, it's 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be a devoted one and despise the other. So if you love them both, that's one thing. But one has to absolutely surpass the other, and it's the love of God. You can't love them on the same level. If you love family the same way you love God, or heaven forbid more than God, family will always come first, or wealth will always come first. Jesus is really cutting at the matter. He knows how difficult this is because we love our moms and dads, and we love our children, and what we really love Itself. We will give ourselves anything ourselves desire. Which I think is interesting because when Paul talks about loving a man loving his wife, he has to love his wife as he loves himself. That, that's a graduated love because we love nothing on this planet more than we love us. That doesn't mean you're narcissistic per se. It can. It just means that you love yourself in the sense that you're going to give yourself anything. I want to go to sleep, I'm going to go to sleep. I'm hungry, I'm going to get hungry. I'm going to eat. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I'm not going there, I'm not going there. We love ourselves. Jesus is saying this. If you can't put behind you your love for your moms and dads, your love for your children, we know that love is up here. If that love is above or on the same plane as God's love, our love for God, you cannot be a disciple of Christ. How are you going to do that? There are some folks, you might be one of them, when they imagine heaven, they cannot nor will they imagine heaven without their children or maybe without their parents. That's the only heaven they want. In heaven, I just want my kids to be with me. I want my mom and dad there. That's what I want. No thought of Jesus, just my family. If that's where you are, you've got some repenting to do today. Because what it is, you have exalted your family. You've exalted someone or something else above your love for Christ when Christ is it. He is the only love that we have compared to our love for children, our love for our families. And when's the last time we heard that shared with the gospel? You want to say yes to Jesus? You have to say no to all of your other priorities, yourself included. That's hard, that's difficult. That's Jesus telling us from his own mouth, 
the easy believism that's out there in churches today, just believe, sign this piece of paper, say this prayer and you're in, is bogus. You never thought you'd hear that word in church. That is bogus. That's ridiculousness. I know you're going to struggle with it, especially you mamas with little babies. That's the center of your life, center of your universe. You're a good mama as a result. But watch out. Ladies, those little precious babies, they aren't yours. You didn't make them. They came from your body, I know. Science shows that you and your husband made them. But they don't belong to you. They're not your children. They're your responsibility. They belong to God. If they go, if they die, heaven forbid, it is to God be the glory. And I'll show you how that unfolds in this text itself. Now, hating mom and dad, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, talking about widows, he says, anyone who does not provide for his own is, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So it's not that we stop loving mom and dad. It's not that we stop loving our own children. We're providing for our own. We're loving them and we're, do, we're loving our families as a service to God himself. But our first service is not to mom and dad. It's not to our children. It's not to us. It's to Christ. If you don't deny them, if you don't love them less, Matthew's gospel says you're not worthy of me. Luke's gospel says you cannot be my disciple. The easy believism, that little card you signed, that little, that little baptism you may have undergone without the full gospel might mean nothing. And you might realize today that meant nothing. I didn't know what I was doing when I said yes to Jesus that day. It might be a day to rededicate. That's what this passage is all about. It's about putting our priorities and making sure that God is number one. God is either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. I'm not making this up. This is the gospel according to Jesus. Verse 27. Oh, by the way, let me look over chapter 18, verse 29. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 18, 29 and 30. Just to kind of push what he's, what he's just said in this context. Peter said, in Luke 18, 28, he said, We have left our homes and followed you, our own homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much in this time, at this time and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, it is a higher priority if a man has to leave his home to serve Christ to leave the country to serve Christ, to leave the world and die for his faith and leave his family alone. It's a higher calling to do that than to stay back and take care of mom and, or take care of wife and children. It's a higher calling. It's what every man must be willing to do. The love of Christ above the love of family, above the love of self. Whoever, verse 27, does not carry his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. That's point number two. The cross, 
At this point, the disciples have no concept of Jesus going to Jerusalem and dying on a cross. Anyone who would have said that, they would have said, there's no way that's going to happen. The cross was the worst form of punishment, and only the worst of the worst criminals received it, and the shame that was associated with it. As we see from Jesus' account later in the Gospels, is that once Jesus was condemned to die, they put a cross beam on his shoulders. He had to carry that. He didn't carry the whole cross. He went to a place where there was a stake in the ground. He carried the cross beam on his back, and they put the cross beam attached to the person on the stake. It became a cross. This is a Roman form of execution. And anyone carrying their cross... If you're out and about in town that day, you're watching the person carry this instrument of death on a trek that has no return. You watch this person. They're walking to their deaths. They're not coming back. They're not saying that person's having a bad day. No one goes up to that person and says, don't worry, it'll get better. That person is going to his torture and his ultimate death. And Jesus is saying, not only if you don't love me more than your family, if you don't, in your own life, whoever does not carry his own cross, which is to say, carry his own shame, if you're not willing to die for Christ, you cannot be his disciple. You cannot say, I are a Christian. I came to know Jesus when I was six years old, and I got baptized when I was six years old. And I know it because my mama told me I was, and my Baptist preacher said I was in, and and you can't lose your salvation. That's true. There is no such thing as a former Christian. Did you know that? There is no such thing as, as someone who was once a Christian. No such thing. There's a person, there are people who, who say I was once a Christian, but the, the better terminology is they're apostates. They said that they believed something and later turned away from. That's apostasy, one who falls away. But there are no former Christians. And so when your six-year-old says something to you, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, I'd like to know Jesus. I'd like to go to heaven when I die. And then they're 18 and you wonder why they dress like Gothic people deny the faith and use foul language and live with their significant other oh but i know they're christians when the six they said that you don't know anything the only thing you really know is this person did not count the cost i didn't tell them to count the cost they didn't know to count the cost but they are not believers most likely nor should you treat them as such be very careful with your children Ladies and gentlemen, be very careful how you share the gospel and be very careful how you assure them once they say, I want Jesus. Of course they do. An eight-year-old and anything under eight years old wants to do one thing in this world, and that's please their moms and dads. They'll say or do anything. Wait till they turn 12 or 13. And it's just the opposite. And then they get into the real world and they see what's out there. They have no remembrance of the past. Jesus is some Sunday school lesson they heard. Something they learned at vacation Bible school. This is about carrying the cross. This is about giving up your own life. Whoever does not do this and come after me, follow in Jesus' footsteps. Look at what Jesus did. To follow after Jesus, 
to walk in his footsteps, to endure the hatred he endured for doing nothing but loving, for doing, preaching the truth out of love, for leaving the kingdom of God, leaving heaven to come to this cursed earth, to live here, to sympathize with our weaknesses, to endure the punishment, ridicule, torture, and ultimate death that he endured, we are told to follow in his footsteps. How's that little profession of faith looking now that you made when you were 10 years old? How is it now when you pray to God and you think you're a child of God? Maybe today you rethink the whole thing. Have I endured or have I considered the cost of what it truly means to be a disciple? There's an old book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I love to say his name, but I love that man. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he paid that price. He was anti-Hitler during World War II. Was part of a conspiracy to kill Hitler. Ended up dying as a martyr. Wrote some wonderful and amazing and awesome words about his love for Christ. He counted the cost and he died. Had a family, but he died for his cause. He counted the cost and he endured that cost. How many people today who call themselves Christians have done the same? How many of you? have actually counted those costs. Can you carry your cross? Can you deny yourself and follow in his footsteps? Because if you can't, you can't be his disciple. He gives two examples here, verse 28 to to 33. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? In other words, you're going to build a house. Um, You're going to... Consider when you buy this, when you build this house, do I have enough money to lay the foundation for all the materials it takes to build this house, for all the plumbing, for all the wiring, for the paint, for the furniture? Do I have enough to finish this house or this building I'm going to build? Jesus says this is common sense. If you're going to build a tower in this context, a house in our context, you have to figure out, do I have enough money? Maybe you don't, and you've gone and gotten a loan, but you've gotten a loan for the house, whatever it takes to do that. No one starts building without it, unless you plan to just build in stages. When he wants to build a tower, does he not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him. Look at that schmo. Thought he had enough money. Put it all down on the foundation. That's all he's got. Couldn't build. What's going on over there? Ah, oh, there's some guy. Didn't have enough money. Didn't count the cost. Thought it was going to cost $1,000, but it cost 150000 He only had enough for the foundation. <laughs> what an idiot. That's what Jesus is saying. They'll, they'll ridicule him. No one did that. It's absurd. Verse 30, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king... Verse 31, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000 men. So you're a king in battle, you're a warrior, you've got 10,000, you're outnumbered two to one. You're going to consider, wait a minute, what's the cost I'm going to endure? They've got 20,000, I've got 10,000. If you consider that you're going to lose, you go and you make peace. That's what he says. Verse 32, or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Otherwise, your army is going to get slaughtered. So two basic examples of 
counting the cost. Counting the cost to build something. Counting the cost to go into war. Our country does it. In the past, when we've gone to war, the battles that we have fought in this country, our presidents have considered the cost. What will it cost? Physically, what will it cost in human lives? Is it worth it? Is freedom at stake? Is it worth the fight? Oftentimes, that answer has been yes. Other times, it's been no. It's not worth the cost yet. It's not worth the cost to bomb North Korea. It's not worth the cost to bomb Russia. We've considered that. How about you? Did you consider the cost when you said, yeah, I want to be a Christian? Or did you just get a promise of when you die, you get to go to heaven? Was it followed up after that as, don't worry, God loves everybody? Why would Jesus even talk about this if everyone was going to heaven? As the false teachers of our day tell everyone, God is just full of love. He can't do anything but love. He is so victimized by love, everybody's going to be with him in heaven. I was looking at some church just yesterday and I uh, wanted to see. It was a, one of those churches with just a name in it, nothing about being Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, or, or just a church, you know, this kind of church. So I looked at the doctrine. It was all about we're here to make an impact in our community. Nothing about Jesus. Nothing about uh, wanting to glorify God. We want our people, that was the other phrases, come as you are. No matter who you are, where you are, you can come. You can dress however you want. Not, we agree with that, whatever. I'm not, we're not here to close police anybody. But that's not the purpose of our gathering. We are here, class, to worship God. Amen. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Can unbelievers worship God? No. It is a gathering of believers to actually sit and worship God by listening to His Word, by singing praises. You know, when we sing, we're praying. That's prayer out loud. You're just putting a tune to it, even if you can't carry it. That, that's praying. What else are you doing? If you're not praying while you're singing, you're just mouthing words. We pray. We worship. We fellowship. We listen. We sit still. We give God this time. We ask God to instill in us His Word. We want the Spirit of God, which sometimes seems dead, to come to life. Stir in us, Lord. We're feeling down. We're dead. Stir in us. That's what Jesus does. He stopped the crowd. He could have said, folks, I appreciate everyone following me. This is great. What is it, probably 20,000 people following around. Somebody go tweet it out. How many people follow me? Jesus could have said. You know what? I appreciate everybody being here. You know what? I, I just want you to know I love all of you. I, I'm just in love with every one of you. And I look forward to when we all die, and we all will, we're all going to be in heaven together. He could have said that. Did you hear when my voice got a little loud like that? I guess that means I'm making a strong point, trying to anyway. But he didn't. He thinned the crowds out with truth. All you large crowds here, look, most of you have not counted the cost. I'm telling you, count the cost. Right down to your very life. It may cost you your life. Are you willing to die for this? Let me ask some of you young people here. You believe in Jesus, you say. What if your mom and dad, what if I stepped up here one day and said, I no longer believe this. 
I'm done. Christianity has disappointed me. I no longer believe. What if I said that? What if your parents said that, young people? Would your faith be rattled? Because if your faith is contingent upon what your mom and dad believe or what your preacher believes, your faith stinks. Your faith must be contingent on one thing, truth. Truth. The truth of what God has said. You either believe it or you don't. It is not contingent upon what anyone says. I could come up and say, I've got new information that shows me the Bible is wrong. You should come up and say, prove it. Prove it, you fool. Go ahead and add that to it if you said that. You should care enough about the whole church to to confront me at such a point. Count the cost. That's what Jesus is saying. The illustrations, count him. And he gives another one. Verse 33, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. Wouldn't we rather that not be there? Because I'm looking at everybody here, including myself. I've got many possessions. The very least, the clothes on my back. I'm not giving those up. I'm not going to give up my house. I'm not going to go sell everything I have today. I don't believe God has called me to do that. The New American Standard Bible, which I use, says give up. The Greek word is apatasso. It means say goodbye. Does that change it at all? Say goodbye. It's really, it's a goodbye. You say goodbye to somebody today, say apatasso. Apatasso. What? Huh? Goodbye. So let's put that in there. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not say goodbye to all his own possessions. It's a little bit different. Your possessions, your home. Let me give a couple of examples. Your beloved car, truck, boat, whatever it might be. Let's just say you wreck it. Is it yours? You paid for it, you're thinking, better be mine, it's in my name. It was given to you. You were enabled to have it by God. He took it from you. What's your first reaction if you love that car? But what I'm telling you to do is go ahead and make the groan. Okay, Lord, it was yours. Are you willing to give it up or not? God doesn't say go sell it, but if he takes it, okay, Lord. Your house. Your house burns. Well, one of our families can attest to this one, right? Their house burned a little bit, enough to where they had to move out. They've been out, I believe, since March. Now, this is not to convict you. I'm certain that you guys have been upstanding perfectly. If the house burns, that's a great inconvenience. And you've got to live at a hotel? Is it your house? God didn't tell you, go sell the house and give the money to the poor, did he? He doesn't speak like that. He's not going to tell you that. You're not going to hear it from heaven. But if something happens to it, then God is saying, I want you to let go of it for a time. Maybe forever. Let it go. Go ahead and give it the groan. My beloved house, my new kitchen, it's caught on fire, it's gone. My house stinks of smoke. It's very inconvenient, but apparently God has told you, I needed you to hold a little bit more lightly to that house. Move on out. Or your health. We had a woman here a couple years ago, still breaks my heart. She came in one Wednesday night. Hey, how you doing? 
Eh, my stomach hurts. I'm a little, little in pain. Oh, okay. No big deal. Stomach hurts. Three months later, she was dead. Pancreatic cancer. She came to church during the time when she knew she was going to die. She sat right over in that area. I remember looking at her. And the look on her face was just, I don't even, what do you think? What, what do you think when you know you're going to die? Stage four pancreatic cancer. I tried to put myself in her shoes so many times and that of her husband and her daughters. I'll never know unless I have to go through it. But God asked for her life. And he asked her husband to let go of the wife. I shouldn't say asked. He said, here's the way it's going to be. What a devastating thing. After a groan, ugh, okay, Lord, it's not my life. She's not my wife. She's your child. You assign the day of our birth, and you assign the day of our death. To God be the glory. That's a cost. Unfortunately, when situations like this come about, those who signed a piece of paper and prayed a prayer are now shaking their fist at God. How dare you do this to me? I got into Christianity so that I could have a good life. That's what the preacher told me I would get. A happy life. Your preacher lied to you. If you got that garbage from Joel Osteen and you don't know that Joel Osteen is the false teacher of false teachers, now you do. Your best life is not here. Our lives are nothing. We are here as servants of God and we hold them lightly. They are God's. And when he says, here's what's going to happen, you say, to God be the glory. That's salvation. If you don't, you can't be his disciple. You can't be. Folks, if you don't think this doesn't convict me, I don't enjoy getting up here and telling you this. I'm not grinding an axe. I'm having to do my own self-reflection. What am I willing to give up? Let me ask you this. How many of you are willing to give up 1% of your income and put it in the church offering? 1%. Some of you give $200. You think $200 gift, is that's all I got to give. But you make 150 Is that all you can give, really? I mean, I admit the New Testament doesn't say we're supposed to give 10%. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says God loves a cheerful giver. Give whatever makes you happy. God loves the cheerfulness. God, you've given it all to me. I'll give you a percentage to show you my thankfulness. But you own it all. So if Jesus is saying, if you can't say goodbye to all your possessions and you can't give one, two, ten percent of your income to the church coffer, my friends, you cannot be Christ's disciple. He said it, not me. Giving of your money is just a quick, quick little litmus test. I can't give it. I won't give it. Yeah, sure, you can go through it in your mind. God doesn't need my money. This church is doing fine. It's not about that. It's about your heart and what you're willing to part with now. And all God is asking, give as a cheerful giver. He's not demanded everything from you, but he has demanded you to be available to give everything. Well, Lance, you're adding to salvation. I didn't write this. And Jesus doesn't go on and on about all you had to do, have faith, you're in, don't worry, don't let any preacher challenge your salvation. Jesus is doing just that. Challenging those. Challenging that crowd. You want to follow me? There's a cost, a a price to be paid. 
If you can't give one, two, 10, 20, 50%, if you can't give 100% in your own mind, Lord, I can give it all to you. I can surrender my children, my wife, my parents, my material possessions. It's yours anyway. You can't be his disciple. Because when we express our faith in Christ alone, by which we are saved, this is what follows. If it doesn't, you ain't saved. Did I not tell you that I would thin this audience out today? There's a hundred people that won't be here next week. You are angry. You think I'm adding to salvation. All I'm doing is telling you what Jesus said. That is my job. He who does not say goodbye to all his own possessions cannot be my disciple. He concludes in verse 34 and 35, Therefore salt is good. What does that mean? Salt is good, but so is pepper. Why is he talking about salt? Salt is a stable compound. Pound. Salt is always salt. You can't keep salt from being salt. But salt, if you put a tablespoon of salt, if you ever gurgled salt because you had a sore throat, you get a little bit of water, you stir in the salt, you throw it in the back of your throat, and you gurgle it up. And you try not to choke on it, but you could taste that salt. All right, gurgle it for a while, let it out. But if you add a tablespoon of salt to a gallon of water, You may or may not even taste that salt. Salt is still there, but it's been watered down. What does Jesus say, tell the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the world. Why would he say that? I prefer pepper. You're the jalapenos of the world. (laughs) Salt, uh, in, in first century context and much later, even up to the present day when we have refrigeration, acted as a preservative. Cover something with salt, it preserves it. Meat, cover it with salt, acts as a preservative. Salt also adds spice, does it not? Taste. And by by the way, everything salt does uh, physically is what a Christian does. Salt also, uh, we would say it it creates thirst. Drink something salty, uh, you you want something more, you need a drink. And have you ever had salt poured on a wound, a scratch? Uh, We were in the Dead Sea a couple months ago, and I told everybody, if you're going to get in the Dead Sea, make sure you don't have a cut anywhere on your body, because you will run on top of that water to get out, splashing it in your eyes along the way, and you'll run really fast. Salt on a wound hurts. So Christians are the salt of the earth in the sense that we preserve this planet. We preserve the people on it. God has not destroyed the earth because we're still here. That's why there's a rapture. He removes his people before his wrath is poured out. But while we're here, we are the preservative of this earth. We may be hated, but what people don't know is our presence here preserves the earth. People. When we're there, we preserve, uh, when we're among others, we preserve the conversation. People will not say certain things that they would have said if we're, if we're there. They will change the tone of their, of their conversation. Oh, Oh, he's a preacher? Oh, I'm sorry. People start apologizing to me like I'm going to not let them into heaven. Oh, I'm sorry, preacher. You didn't use my name in vain. Uh, your problem is not with me. You need to ask forgiveness of God. But we do that. We preserve. We also uh, add taste. We add spice. People might not like it. But I want to be a, a ghost pepper. And I strive to be a ghost pepper. Ever had a ghost pepper? If you've had one, you know you've had it. And there's not enough milk you can drink to get rid of it for the next hour or so. I want to be a ghost pepper. I want to add the spice by preaching God's word. I want to, I want to 
I want everything about it to permeate through my life. Not everyone's going to like it. I know that. I've learned that. But that's what Christians do. We add a spice. We add a taste to this world. We also are there to create a thirst. We give people a little bit of truth. We give them a little bit of us. Some people want more. What is it that makes you tick? I want more. I want to drink more of what you have. And we also are assault on a wound. Some of you are here today. You are very uncomfortable. You're visiting. You are not a believer. And you, are, you cannot wait till you can get out of here. And you will run. Your car will leave skid marks. Because the preaching is about salt on a wound. That's, that's what salt does. Salt also, however, was used to preserve dung. Now, I'm not going to go further in my explanation of dung. You know what dung is. But dung had uh, various uses, fertilizing uses. But if it, if it dries out, I know. I said bogus and we're talking about dung. That's weird in church. Salt would be used to preserve the dung for a later thing that needed pres- preservation. Can I just stop there? So Jesus is saying, therefore, salt is good. In other words, your life as a believer is good, has great value as salt does. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? If it's been watered down, if your salvation has no fruit, if your confession of Christ has no fruit, if you're not willing to die, if you're not willing to confess or to deny yourself and and love others less than God, if you're not willing to give some percentage of your income, of your talents to God, you're just watered down salt. What good are you? With what will it be seasoned? We are here to season the planet, the people, the societies. Wouldn't it be convicting if somebody said oh i didn't know you were a christian no one should ever say that to us oh i didn't know you were a christian why why not well you talk like everybody else you never talk about christ i mean what's the number one thing in our what's our priority if christ is our priority it's what we talk about if christ is our priority it's what we talk about He says in verse 35, speaking of that salt that's been watered down, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. Can't even use it to keep the dung preserved. You're worthless. And what is it's done? It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, which is akin to saying, folks, listen up. Don't take what Jesus is saying lightly. You're hearing what I say. Better yet, you're hearing what Jesus said, what God has preserved for us. I heard one preacher say, God is not looking to do a makeover on us. He is looking to take over us. Not a makeover, but a takeover. God owns everything. We are stewards Mere stewards, servants of what God has entrusted to us. Stewards of everything, owners of nothing. If we're owners of nothing, then we can hold it loosely, can't we? If God says, no, I want your wife, Lance. I want your health, Lance. I want your job, Lance. I want your house. 
So be it, Lord. So be it. It's yours. It's not mine. She's not mine. I love her. I love my children like you love yours. I love this job. I hate to call it a job. I love this. Oh, I don't love the attention. In fact, I despise the attention. I love that I can get to, I can preach God's word. I love that people come here to hear God's word. I love that. I also love, although I hate it at the same time, that there will be people that won't come back because I love knowing God's word is so sharp. It pierces. It cuts through with a double-edged sword into our souls. It divides the, the, the wheat from the tares, the men from the women, or I should say the men from the boys, I should say. Had to lighten that moment anyway, didn't I? But if God wants it, it's His. If you meet in a shepherding group and you have your outline, I hope that you'll look at it this week. Before that, I hope that you'll read the blogs. If you enjoy deleting them, go ahead and delete them after they're done. But I hope you enjoy reading them first. They are commentaries on this sermon. Some of them are more in-depth. To think through and evaluate who you are what you are, what you will be going forward. That you will discuss them. That you will make your own applications. Some of you may have to swallow your pride and say, you know what, I've lived a life of a lie. I thought I've been a Christian all along. And I'm man enough today to say, I guess I haven't been. Today's my new commitment day. My new real rebirth. I've been reborn today in Christ. It's all right. What a great story that would be. If you told it. But do not go away from here thinking that because you prayed a prayer at some point in the past and threw your hand up and said yes to Jesus, that that somehow makes you a Christian. It is a confession that Jesus is Lord, yes. It is a belief in one's heart that God raised him from the dead, yes. And it is either a transformed life or all of that is false. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. If you haven't counted the cost, today count the cost. May God bless you as you do. Let me pray. Lord, bless each one of us in spite of ourselves, in spite of the fact that we are rebels against you, even those of us who are saved. The tug of our flesh wants what we want. Our idols are us. Sometimes our children, sometimes our friends, sometimes our possessions. Almighty God, creator of all, convict us of the sins that we continue to bring with us. Remind us of your grace and your mercy. It transcends our own rebellion. May we get right with you today. These are your words. This is not me grinding an axe. This is us. This is us trying to reconcile what we've been told in the past with what your word teaches us here. May we count the cost. May we be willing to die. May we be willing to suffer. May we be willing to give up everything if you, if you call for it. And say to God, be the glory. Unto you and to you alone be the glory. If you save us by your grace, if you save us by your grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, and you do it for your glory alone, then may that be what we live for, for your glory alone, not ours you as our priority that is our prayer 
If it's not, if you are not our priority today, do not let us leave this campus. Don't let us get out onto Mushki Road today, Lord, without having made that adjustment. You are the priority in our lives. You are what we look for in heaven and no one and nothing else because no one and nothing else matters, only you. This we pray humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 